Hello and welcome to the All Angles podcast. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Pilar Gomez-Bravo, who is an investment officer and leader at MFS and manages our global fixed income and credit strategies. In this conversation, after we learn a little bit more about Pilar and her background, we dive deep into how she thinks about sustainability in the context of global fixed income markets and investing. This is a really fascinating topic and a theme that lots of people in the industry are talking about now, and I'm sure we'll hear more about in the years to come. Don't forget, you can subscribe to All Angles through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to get your podcasts from. And if you do have any questions that you'd like us to cover, please get in touch by emailing us at allangles@mfs.com. So Pilar, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vish. It's a pleasure being here. Great. Welcome. Um, so Pilar, just before we kind of dive deep into sustainability and fixed income, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you or share more with our listeners about you. Give us a potted history. How did you get here? Um, yes, well, I wasn't uh, the most direct way. I can't claim that my passion when I was young was to be a portfolio manager in fixed income. No. Um, but nevertheless, it, you know, what did get me here was just adapting to different settings and different changes. So I grew up uh, between the US and Spain. I um, did a degree in law and, uh, and another degree in economics to kind of figure out which one of those two paths I wanted to follow. Um, ended up in management consulting, um, realizing that that was not my calling. Uh, finished uh, doing a, an MBA in the US um, and from there on jumped into the world of investment banking. Again, unsure whether I wanted to do capital markets or in fact investment banking. I did a little bit of both and then eventually settled in capital markets where I fell in love with fixed income actually. I, I always thought I was going to be an equities and an equities uh, analyst or investor. Um, but rotated around in fixed income, they managed to convince me to, to go down to that trading floor and fell in love with the um, enormous amount of opportunities to make money in the asset class. Um, ended up in credit research, really as a credit analyst, where I thought I had the best chance to talk to anybody and everybody at the firm, as well as with clients, and therefore developed that connectivity. And from there, went into the asset management side um, and joined MFS about 10 years ago. I mean, I had the pleasure and the pain of spending most of uh, my career at the time at Lehman Brothers um, and then Lehman Brothers Asset Management. So lots of lessons learned from that experience going through the bankruptcy while still being an investor and, and obviously managing the team um, and ended up here to really develop the global fixed income um, you know, strategies as well as the credit strategies and also grow the fixed income platform outside of North America, which are the things that I've been focused on over the last uh, almost 10 years. Amazing. Um, I might take you back a touch. So you said you fell in love with fixed income because of the opportunity and the ability to make money. Um, is, is there anything else that kind of drew you into fixed income at that time? I always like to ask people about the road less traveled. And you've talked about law, management consulting, equity. You had lots of roads, loads less traveled. So I'm just curious, is there anything yes. that you reflect on now that kind of pulled you in that kind of keeps you so motivated to keep looking at this asset class? I, I think I fell in love with the complexity of it. I know it sounds kind of odd that you'd be attracted by complexity, but it just felt that if you were able to uh, 
you know, create an investment process to take advantage of that complexity that, you know, that, that maybe that would be an area where there would be less, um, you know, players involved, I guess. Uh, so the complexity and also the variety, uh, you know, I think mm. variety is the spice of life. And I felt that there was a lot more variety in terms of the different asset classes, obviously the different currencies, um, you know, the global nature of fixed income that appealed to me, um, which is an area, again, it's not typical that you would learn a lot about fixed income in general in university or indeed through other, you know, daily uh, events in your life, right? If you look at the newspapers, they're mostly focused on equity stories, yeah, um, not really on fixed income. So it was eye opening for me and it was the complexity and the diversity of the asset class that I fell in love with. Mm. And you said that some of your that's super interesting about how maybe you don't cover fixed income in the curriculum as much as we do equity. Um, and you said some of your formative years were spent at at Lehman Brothers, which I'm sure was a, a bit of a roller coaster ride. Anything that you again reflect on and take out of that experience that sort of helps you today as you reflect on team building and the kind of culture and, and what you're aspiring to achieve here and now? Yes, I mean, obviously, very different culture. Um, but I think really looking back, and obviously, hindsight is, is 2020, what was the most valuable? learning experience was really kind of sharing information was key, right? I mean, that's how trading desks really make money. Um, and sort of being able to be at the hub of information sharing from clients, different types of clients, uh, different types of investors, um, but also being able to access, you know, what the syndicate desks are saying, what the, um, you know, investment bankers are saying, what the equity team is saying. Is, is really kind of when I look back, it was really understanding the importance of being able to be connected as much as possible to as much information as possible as well that really gave you the edge. Got it. And Pilar, so thinking about all of that now, um, what is your why today? Why do you like doing what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What kind of drives you and motivates you now? Well, I, I love to make a difference. Um, and really, I don't manage my own money. So it, it's really a, a service that that I provide, that we provide to our clients. And I think the purpose really, you know, give, having been in consulting and investment banking, I, I love doing what I do because I see the social purpose, right? I feel like every day that I come to work, I'm helping somebody retire with dignity and somebody who's worked long hours be able to enjoy their savings. And that sort of keeps me going. It motivates me. I love uh, the markets. As I said, I'm passionate about fixed income. I think there's always opportunities. And for me, I'm relatively um, a proud Spaniard and therefore like really to do well at everything that I do, relatively competitive. Um, and so the, the thing that keeps me so passionate and so um, excited is that, you know, the market provides us with challenges every day um, and we have to navigate those challenges for the benefit of our clients. Right. And so it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you fresh. Um, and again, you can't really kind of rest on your laurels. You have to always be top of um, of your form to be able to deliver for clients. And that, again, is exciting and it just keeps me going. Absolutely. And you mentioned a few things already, not only that the market is throwing up many challenges, but the, what pulled you in was sort of complexity um, and, and actually sort of about a vocational element of what we actually do and sort of creating a difference. So I'm going to use those as a segue to talk about sustainability. Um, maybe if you could just start by talking, how do you think about sustainability or ESG? What would you describe as your approach to think about it in your investment philosophy or process? 
Yeah, so I think that sustainability, you know, it's funny because the, the existing focus on sustainability for fixed income um, often was kind of part and parcel of what we do, right? Because we only really have downside. So it was always um, part of the analysis and, and the investment thesis that you had to have a strong view on the sustainability of the company because otherwise you wouldn't get paid. Um, and, and so at least certainly in the part of governance, right? You know, you're mm. not sort of necessarily the key stakeholder um, as much as a shareholder is. And, and that part, sort of the, certainly the governance part was always pretty much present in fixed income as a whole. I think where the evolution has been, has been obviously on the E and the S components of ESG and really having a more thoughtful approach as to how those contribute to an investment thesis and and therefore, again, a portfolio construction approach. Um, I do appreciate that with time, there's a lot more data and information. And I think that's really what's driven the difference nowadays is that information, as I mentioned earlier, with regards to kind of the, the Lehman Brothers experience, information flows much more freely and therefore you have a lot of access to information. And I think that our role as fixed income investors is really to, you know, distill the noise from kind of mm -hmm. the essence of what really you're looking for. So materiality, uh, investment horizons and fixed income matter a lot because we have a choice as to where to lend. Um, and therefore those complexities that I mentioned um, exist even more so when you try to think about sustainability uh, in juxtaposition with obviously the financial considerations of an investment. But the reality is that in a way, the huge push from a regulatory perspective, as well as a social perspective and understanding these drivers makes our life a little bit easier in terms of detangling these factors within our investment considerations. It's sort of a, a talk about the evolution and new information coming in and, and something that I, when speaking with clients or even thinking about ESG and how it's happening, I often think, you know, before, you know, maybe 20 years ago, things lived sort of outside of traditional economic models, but now we have better data, better compute power to be able to start to internalize some of those things. I wonder if you agree with that as you spoke about material elements of ESG or, or how we distill sort of signal from noise. Is there anything that, that you sort of think has evolved in the last few years for you in terms of how you think maybe about the E and the S factors? I mean, I think a lot of our job is really to ask the right questions. So mm. what I think we have learned over the last couple of years is is what the right questions are. And I think that it has been it has been great to sort of see that evolution, um, working with management teams or issuers, sovereign issuers, uh, municipal issuers, um, you know, in general, any, again, any asset class within fixed income is being able to understand what are the right questions for that particular issuer at that particular point in time. And it has been a process, it's a journey, and I think we're getting better and better at asking those questions. And the reason why it's also important is because, you know, you have a limited amount of time um, to engage with these issuers and you want to make sure that every minute counts as much as possible so frankly the process of sustainability is a process of listening and being able to mm -hmm. then take away um, what you've learned and then sort of have a, a, a minute to think and see holistically how that applies to your portfolio i love that the process of sustainability is the process of listening i wonder if I don't think that's kind of common wisdom. And I, I was going to ask you a question if given, you know, your role is to, again, ultimately create alpha to have a differentiated view to the marketplace, if there are spaces in which you believe you think your philosophy, your approach, be it to ESG or, or anything else is kind of differentiated or kind of contradicts what we might think of as sort of conventional market wisdom. Um, 
I do think the listening is, is important. You know, sometimes the ESG investors are uh, extremely loud about what they would like to see uh, and probably doing more talking than listening. But is there anything else that you would point to that you think that you have an, uh, an inherent investment belief that is somewhat different or, or differently positioned to the rest of the marketplace as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think, a lot, well, I mean, it's kind of hard, right? The markets are well trodden to sort of identify something that somebody else hasn't really thought about. But I think, you know, with with experience, with years of doing this, I've come to the conclusion that um, connectivity is hugely important and being able to bring um, knowledge from other areas to whatever the discussion is at hand is really important because, frankly, I think what I, I guess what I would say is that two plus two can be five. And for two plus two to be five, you need to bring more than just the expert knowledge um, to the table. And so a lot of the investment world focuses on specialization and going narrower and narrower in their, that field. And, and sustainability is the same, right? You end up talking a very complex level of detailed um, analysis on, on sort of whether you know, you're looking at carbon emissions or you're looking at exactly how to measure uh, scope three um, or you know, again, sort of you know, evolution of the board, et cetera. When sometimes actually just being able to take a step back and putting the pieces together, pattern recognition, assessing examples that you've lived through in other areas, other industries, and how they could apply to that specific company or that specific investment actually brings a lot of value. So for mm. me, what I think is different, and when you think about sustainability as well, is being able to have that holistic approach. And the holistic approach comes from connectivity and being able to draw from other areas and having that more generalist view rather than you know, the, the, I guess what's common, uh, you know, expectation is that that very deep expertise is really going to drive um, the alpha uh, and the uh, sustainability approach. So I would take the other side. I think that sort of having that general perspective, having the connectivity, being able to draw from different areas uh, of knowledge brings a lot to the table and you can get two plus two equals five. I like it a lot. Um, the whole being more than the sum of its parts. And I think you're right. We, we tend to probably be very we're trained actually to be reductionist in our thinking that we if we understand the individual component parts we can add that up but you know to your point i think there are plenty of examples and maybe we'll get into some of where the whole can be more or two plus two can can be more than can be more than four um I, I, maybe we, we will get into your portfolios and how you think about it i mean one of the things that's interesting to me is um you know pilar you run fairly broad kind of multi-asset fixed income portfolios um, and we know that sort of ESG application is nuanced and is nuanced particularly by some of those sub-asset classes. So I'm curious, for you, given your seat and given you like to take that holistic approach, are there, this is a big question, are there sort of global principles? Are there nuances by region or asset class that you regularly think about? Uh, well, yes, definitely. I mean, I think that when you have a global approach, you realize that you have to have some sort of level of minimum common denominator that really guides your philosophy and, and then being able to have the flexibility to adapt to the different circumstances of the region or the asset class that you're looking at. So that is actually the beauty of portfolio construction is to sort of require a minimum level of threshold um, to be able to make those decisions that you have to make on a more agile fashion, but understand that you have to have the nuanced approach and the flexibility. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, when you think about sustainability and fixed income, and the variety of assets that we deal with at the end of the day you know as an active long-term investor we do our own homework and 
doing our own homework means just like we go and dig into the details of these issuers and adjust for the different variables that apply, you do the same thing with sustainability. We don't outsource that to a third party. Like we wouldn't outsource an analysis of a balance sheet or a macro political element of a sovereign. And therefore, a lot of what we do in fixed income is doing our own homework. And that means that you have to be flexible to adapt to understanding the different considerations while you're still applying the same principles of ultimately being repaid, right? We're lenders, so you just want to make sure that uh, that you're creating that value. And the portfolio construction process will, I like to talk about sort of fixed income um, processes in a disciplined fashion, but a little bit like um, you have quick, um, like like a kitchen you have, or, or a menu. You will have some quick hits, right? These are sort of your hors d'oeuvres. And again, when you talk to issuers about sustainability, there will some quick, easy things that you can sort of see can get you to the right path. But then there are the stews that take quite a long time, right? And being able to assess in a portfolio, what are your hors d'oeuvres and what are your stews is really important because the two of them make the many, right? That's kind of how you enjoy your, your dining experience is having a combination of, of those of sweet and salt and hors d'oeuvres and stews. So sustainability is the same thing. Investment decisions and fixed income are similar. You will have some that are more short-term in nature within that long-term active approach and some that really require patience and time and always engagement uh, at every point in time, whether they're short-term decisions or long-term decisions in the portfolio. I love that. That's kind of the multidisciplinary thinking, but the hors d'oeuvres and stews, I've never thought about that an analogy before. I'm going to have to come up with a kind of menu-based analogy for you later on. Um, you, you mentioned um, up front that, you know, one of your roles and one of the, the responsibilities, I suppose, that you have is um, as a leader within the fixed income department and sort of helping kind of grow the team, build the team, nourish the team culture that is here. Um, and you talked about, you know, being a generalist and having a holistic view, but also having the kind of bedrock of more specialists underneath. How, again, in, in that more leadership capacity, um, is there anything there that you can share in terms of how it works for the specialist teams? With, again, within some of these asset classes, maybe where it's more of a stew, i.e. a longer term patient approach versus where there are shorter term quick fixes available, where there are better well-trodden pathways for them to integrate sustainability into their work. Yeah, so I mean, I th I, I'm a strong believer of diversity in the teams, right? So having the different perspectives, as I said, can contribute to the two plus two equals five thesis. So, you know, I think one of the things as we as we grow the fixed income platform, really, where you do have these unique asset classes that require expertise within those asset classes is to be able to find um, any and every uh, occasion for those teams to get together and to be able to share views. Uh, and so we do have different forums in fixed income of portfolio managers and analysts that allow us to really derive the value of that cross-sharing of, of cross-pollinization of thought. So, you know, you will have muni analysts that can talk about, you know, healthcare and education, obviously, together with our credit analysts and also the macro analysts that have to incorporate sort of those themes in the sovereigns that they analyze, right? So sometimes you think that something is very specific to an asset class, but then you find out that again, that there are common elements across uh, the different teams that can be shared. So, you know, as a leader, I mean, I think a lot of it is sort of ensuring that there's that diversity of thought, there's that freedom of expression of your views and conviction levels on your thesis. Um, but there's that sort of true sense of of the value that provide to other teams by sharing that knowledge in forums that allow you to, to 
express yourself uh, freely. And really, I think that one of the key things that I look for when we build teams is adaptability to change. You know, I've had the, the benefit of being involved over the last 10 years and growing the platform. And one of the key things that we look at, aside from integrity and work ethic and sort of the cultural fit, is really adaptability to change because the level of change that we're seeing, and we can see this through sustainability, is uh, ever increasing and you need people mm. that are resilient that have grit and that can adapt to change because um, the world is changing quite quickly yeah absolutely it's fascinating in these conversations how um a lot of the people who i think are sort of successfully integrating this self are very adaptable and malleable to change and it's always interesting to me about their backgrounds and sort of maybe what's help them understand that change is something that we should embrace and complexity is something to be embraced um rather than the, maybe the stability that sometimes I, I think as humans we all sort of crave. Um, is there anything in, in that, given how much is changing, given um, how dynamic many of these fields are, is there anything that you think all investors, uh, asset owners, investment managers, wherever they might be in the value chain, what is the most important or critical thing that we should be focused on right now? I mean, I think that Again, you, you have to try not to miss the forest for the trees. Um, and, you know, do, do you have to do that methodically, systematically? And again, you mentioned earlier some of these core principles, right? So, you know, investors can come in all shapes and forms, right? So, you know, when you're, uh, you know, you're at MFS, we invest with certain philosophy and certain values, right? And those are the core that you always grab as a safety blanket as you jump into the ever-changing world. But those are the core values that you're always gonna come back. And it's values that are driven by generating responsible, alpha, sustainable performance for our clients, right? And then, you know, how you do that might evolve, right? Rightly so, because the markets are also changing, but really that essence and the core values are there. So ultimately, try not to miss the forest for the trees, keep that sort of, in essence, in life and in work. Understand what is important, once you understand what is important, then you can ask the right questions. And therefore, you then can discern kind of what is important for your investment thesis, for your portfolios, for your clients, uh, rather than sort of getting distracted by the barrage of information and data that we get subjected to every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And um, Pilar, I, I wonder if there, you, you mentioned a couple of things and we planted a flag earlier that I said we might come back to of you know taking a more holistic approach you talked about the information flow and kind of connectivity of ideas giving you a sort of analytical edge if you like on how you might look at a particular situation um are there any examples that sort of spring to mind for you uh, over the sort of last year or so where you you feel you've been able to draw from either the platform or from your experience of working across multiple sectors or asset classes or regions that's helped you analyze a risk or opportunity slightly differently? Um, yes, definitely. I mean, I think that obviously having the, um, the excellence of our equity investment team, you know, as well as some of the quant frameworks that we're always developing really help support a lot of their thesis and fixed income. I would say that also, I think that some of the challenges that we face are challenges that have to do with combining the E, the S and the G actually. So yeah. I think that that holistic approach is also reliant on the fact that you're trying to take into account all these different letters in, in one thesis, right? And so sometimes you have a clash at any one point in time. Um, you know, we, and we work together 
quite closely with, uh, especially on the credit side, when talking to some of the companies where we do have access. You know, we I had recently an engagement meeting with the chairman of the board of one of the companies that we lent to um, that have had some recently some issues. And you know, that meeting we was comprised by PMs on the fixed income side, it had PMs on the equity side, it had the dedicated analysts and obviously our stewardship team. So it was very comprehensive. But we had an hour of the chairman of the board's time talking about culture and some of the changes that he's making. I think there are very few places where you could sort of claim that you would have that access, um, fixed income together with equities without necessarily the chairman of the board knowing who's who in that discussion. Um, but in, in terms of combining the, the ES and the G, you know, I can give you an example over the last several years um, with an um, auto manufacturer that had significant governance issues. And uh, ever since then, um, we've been engaging very closely with them around some of those issues, but also recognizing that on the E, side of things, we're making significant strides and we're going to be a leader in electrification of vehicles and therefore had a lot to contribute to, to the world in terms of switching over to to that and, and sort of very unique innovation in that aspect and huge amount of investment, right? So again, it's how do you combine those two, you know, mm. where you might have a, a weakness in one area, you're trying to engage on that, but also recognize the potential of the other area. So that's one example. We had another example on the mining sector, again, where we've been engaging very significantly with a company that has had a checkered past, um, but where we do uh, recognize their commitment to change. And again, talking about change is kind of when do you give credit to a management team that they really are uh, keen to, to be a partner in developing solutions for climate change. And so that requires even more constant engagement. We've had, again, meetings with, with them uh, on a number of occasions. So those are two recent examples where, um, you know, they're not necessarily the easiest sectors. We do own some energy companies in, in my portfolios. We own, again, utilities. We own, you know, companies that would tend to be excluded in um, mandates that would be exclusionary. And the reason why we do that is because we have strong beliefs that they're going to be winners in E, S, and G, and that we want to be partnering along with them to give them guidance and, and help support them in that journey to create a better, you know, more sustainable world and not just a better, more sustainable portfolio. And that takes a lot of courage, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, because you are going against the grain on many occasions and it's really identifying in these um, sectors that are not so obvious, those companies where you do want to, um, you know, to bet and, and sort of partner with them to to take on the journey towards, um, you know, again, a better E, a better S and a better G. I'm glad you used that word courage. I was thinking as you were describing it that, um, again, what's always fascinating to me about the approach that you've described, which is one of, you know, sort of integration and sort of engagement, active, active ownership. Um, and engaging with these issuers in order to think about where they're going to be in future requires a tremendous amount of sort of courage of conviction that there is change afoot and that, you know, ultimately the you as a lender uh, or an, an investor will be rewarded for that. Um, and that, that's got to be much harder than, well, I'll phrase this question, is that much harder than just using, you know, a backward looking sort of screened approach or using, you mentioned ratings before, but, you, you know, sort of marking down companies for controversy versus trying to price things for the future. Ultimately, you as an active investor get paid to help price future risk and return, right? Um, but again, I'm, I'm sh does that temptation ever come in to kind of look at some of the controversies and look the other way? Or um, does it, do you keep going back to the watering hole of that courage of conviction to keep looking at some of those names that, yes, there may have been controversies in the past, but actually there's a, we can see that there's a direction of travel or there's potential upside if, if that business starts to move in the right direction on some of these factors. 
Well, yes, definitely. See, I think that a lot of the times ESG has been, quote unquote, tainted by it being a risk. And of course it is a risk, right? Um, but there's also an opportunity. And that's, I think, when, and I say this as a fixed income person where we usually don't have a lot of upside, but I do believe strongly, that's the courage of my conviction is that there are opportunities actually in, in ESG rather than just avoidance of risk. Of course, mm. we have to avoid the risk, but there's also a huge amount of opportunities. It's, it's like the industrial revolution in terms of the amount of lending that is going to be required to fund the investments that are required in new technologies and an evolution towards a, a more sustainable path, right? So, um, and even the conviction around sort of having difficult conversations around board structures, governance, around social aspects and stakeholder interests, right? So I, it's not easy sometimes, you know, mm. and sometimes actually management or, you know, issuer teams, because sometimes the discussions are with sovereigns, right? Um, sometimes they're like, why are you asking me this? <laughs> you know, so we've had <laughs> occasions where we have been saying, well, why? Because they have a, you know, sometimes management, like as you would expect a lot of the times, they will have their sort of scheduled points that they want to tell you that are sort of somebody has uh, drafted for them. And, you know, you, you drill into asking them questions as to how that sustainability element is relevant for their business. Because again, mm -hmm. They're not separate, they're together, right? So when we ask a question about sustainability, it's not for the sake of just sustainability itself, it's for the sake of delivering better business outcomes. And sometimes they're like, well, why are you asking me about the business? I thought this was a, a call around sustainability and they don't necessarily understand that the two go hand in hand. And so, yeah, it takes courage. It takes sort of, you know, being able to, with patience, explain kind of why it's important to combine sustainability with the business mm. uh, aspects and, and therefore, you know, be able to drive better investment outcomes. But um, I think part of the challenge, to be honest, is that it, it is relatively, you know, for management teams, for treasuries uh, around the world, for different departments in areas that need to issue. Uh, and I, I think fixed income plays a huge role, even sometimes more than equities, because everybody needs financing through the lending channel and yeah. very few companies want to issue equity, um, but they do want to issue bonds. So we are much more frequent, um, you know, we are much more uh, frequently asked for money effectively. Um, but I think a lot of the times uh, at the end of the day, they really kind of, it is new for them as well, right? How to handle investment uh, questions, how to handle the wall of uh, eager discussions, because again, as some investors are just ticking the box some are just excluding outright without even wanting to learn kind of what the companies are doing or what the governments are doing. And, and so they are sort of, again, evolving as well with regards to kind of what is material, what is important uh, to determine those investment outcomes longer term. That's great. And like you said, your questions have been evolving and you're asking better questions now. And so they, they need to come up with, with good answers. But it's a timely reminder, a really powerful reminder about the, it's not, ESG is not just a risk, it's an opportunity too. And to hear it from a bond investor is always uh, heartwarming, I think, for everybody. Um, Pilar, just a few questions to end. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Outside of, make this more about you again, outside of MFS, what do you devote your time to when you're not thinking about global fixed income markets? <laughs> it's not a lot of time. The global fixed income is, is a big, broad universe. But I actually have four kids and a dog. So frankly, I, I don't really have much time uh, outside of those. Once, if it's not, you know, fixed income markets or investment markets in general, um, then it really is occupied by my family and uh, you know, the, the four kids, uh, the more recent uh, addition of the dog as well. So that uh, that does leave me with with 
a little bit fewer fewer time i do like other things you know the cooking the reading the music the going out for walks and exercise but frankly a lot of it has to do with my my children and my husband obviously yeah and you mentioned the dogs of recent edition how, how recent is recent of the dog oh, is that just because four children <laughs> It was a nightmare, actually, uh, because, uh, you know, I finally caved in uh, after my kids had been demanding a dog for a long time. Finally, finally caved in. Literally, it was like November right before the pandemic. So the dog started getting training and suddenly the training stopped because the person couldn't come anymore. So we have like a wild half trained dog. <laughs> that we basically never, not, never socialized, sort of got used to having everybody in the family at home forever with the lockdowns oh, and no. I, I have a feeling that now now the dog is two years old and he you know he really hasn't had like a normal upbringing uh with regards to sort of the dedicated training and sort of the socialization but we love him he's a, he's you know certainly full of energy and uh you know as usual the kids have decided to abandon all responsibilities nice. for the dog except cuddling him every once in a while <laughs> and, and that's why i added that the time you know dedication is also encompassing for the dog Excellent. My my girls, uh, two girls, eight and five, they are also desperate for a dog. Um, but until they can demonstrate sort of six months worth of commitment that they will look after it, we're going nowhere near uh, the dog. I'm actually a huge fan, but my wife is uh, hold, the holdout in our house for now. So we'll see uh, when yeah, our time we... comes. I might come to you for tips on... I was going to uh... say, I think we have parallel trajectories there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, um, so you mentioned reading. I'm not sure you get much time to do it outside of four children, investment markets, and now um, feral dog at home. But what is the book, article, or piece of literature that you have shared or recommended the most? So I actually have a wide ranging interest in books. Uh, I read a lot of obviously investment content, content every day. So I don't always just look to read books about mm. investments. Um, but I did come across an article a long time ago that I do always sort of go back to every once in a while. It was actually a, a speech uh, given by a guy called Fernando del Pino, who was a board member of Ferrovial and sort of the son of the founder at Ferrovial, who ended up also being an investor and did give a speech to, you know, I think it was a hedge fund audience. It was called The Five Experiments. And it was quite an interesting rundown of history and the main changes that, you know, society has lived through. So, again, it's about societal change over time. And, you know, the first experiment is about democracy and how little, uh, you know, how we think it's kind of a God given right to have mm. democracies. But that hasn't always been the case. Right. Or again, this, you know, an experiment about how much debt we live with in the world that it hasn't always been the case that we've mm. had all this uh, dead and it was a short speech but very powerful just to bring back again sort of the essence of the main changes that we've had um in societies i mean i think another topical book that i've recommended quite a bit more lighthearted uh, in a way is red notice which was um uh about obviously the russian um uh involvement with bill Browder. Browder. Yeah, um yeah. and that was uh uh, again, a very interesting book that we've, you know, it's always kind of like word of mouth has been recommended to me and then I've recommended um, uh, to others. But I, I have very wide interest in reading. I've read, uh, I've been, I recently finished a book uh, called Little History of Philosophy, uh, which again, going back to sort of the essence of philosophy, which I, I found it really, really 
interesting. Uh, I had uh, a, a book about physics that I finished recently about the laws of gravity and how that affects space and, and continuum. So it is kind of, I've read books about mitochondrias and biology. Um, and so again, it's just a wow, little ageless was a recent book that I read about aging, uh, maybe I'm getting to that stage in life. So it is, <laughs> you know, I, it is, I, I do find that, you know, I, if I'm going to read a book, it tends, it tends to be less about, um, fixed income let's put it yeah. that way no but it's going to stretch you it's going to stretch you in a dimension that you don't naturally kind of tread down um that article sounds fascinating i actually also just finished red notice about two months ago um which is a fascinating read about um how that came to be and and even just what i hadn't appreciated in that um was maybe that set the precedent for how we think about sanctions diplomatic sanctions so you know again back to this idea of we sort of take for granted and think that this has already ex always existed in history. But what it brought to life for me is that that had to be campaigned for and fought for for a long period of time. And only very recently sort of became a, a way that, you know, um, governments around the world can start to control for some of those things. So super, super interesting. Um, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Ah, well, that's that's a good one. So I always like to look at little kindness every day. I I find little elements of kindness in every day because, um, you know, I think that sometimes you change happens in small doses rather than in large ones. So, you know, but having said that, actually, one of the kindest things um, was uh, during COVID, actually, unfortunately, my husband had to have surgery, uh, which was a really difficult period in time. Obviously, during COVID, mm. the markets were also not very easy. <laughs> so. Um, I had uh, a mother in one of my kids' class would deliver food to me that she had cooked oh. for us um, because she knew that obviously I was going to be extremely busy and, uh, you know, she she took it upon herself to to deliver food to my door, basically, that she had cooked for a couple of days just to oh, make lovely. it a little bit easier. And again, you know, I, again, I don't get to, you can imagine, I don't get to spend much time at my kids' schools, uh, given how many I have and that they all go to different schools. So. I thought that that was kind of really kind of very kind and, and out of yeah. the way. At MFS, actually, one of the kindest things, uh, again, sort of unprompted, was in one of my visits to Japan where we were seeing some clients there. Um, I was mentioning the fact that my boys love Pokemon. And again, uh, a few weeks later, uh, they sent me in the post some Pokemon cards in Japanese for them. And I thought that was, again, a very thoughtful gesture, unnecessary um, and, and very kind. So as I said, you know, sometimes I just look for little things that, that just brighten my day. And I feel, um, again, they're gestures that are unnecessary, but really kind. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um... We're also drowning in Pokemon over here. We've got Pikachu, you, Bulbasaur yeah, and Charmander kind of coming out of our ears. Um, Pilar, just to finish, what one message do you think is really, really important to deliver to our listeners? I think that you have to have grit and resilience. And uh, again, sort of keep in mind what the purpose and the goal is and, and why you're doing what you're doing. I think it's really important to have passion in everything that you do. And I think a lot of the time that passion is really what gets um, translated to to the performance, to your connections, to your relationships and to your team uh, motivation. So have grit and have passion. Uh, it's difficult to get up every day and, and sort of be involved in kind of what we do and engaged. Um, as I said, you have to have courage and you can't really have the courage if you don't have the passion and the grit to get you there. So. I would say that's, you know, if you have those two, then you'll get anywhere you want. 
Great. Pilar, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Vish, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. So that's the end of episode seven. I hope you took something away from that conversation. I certainly did. Thinking about adaptability and resiliency in uh, investing and in markets, thinking about how having a holistic perspective gives you a shot at getting to an idea of two plus two equals five. Uh, and I'll definitely be thinking about hors d'oeuvres and stews for a little bit longer. Um, but more than anything, I think Pilar's message on grit and how you deal with the dynamism that is being thrown at investors uh, up and down the value chain today was really, really powerful. So remember, you can subscribe to All Angles through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to get your podcasts from. And if you do have any questions you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch by emailing us at allangles at mfs.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.